So last week we covered the opening of the book of First John, and I encourage you to listen to it online because we don't have a chance to, you know, recap everything. But I, here's what I can say, that the epistles or the, the letters of John, they were written by one of Jesus' closest friends. And John was an old pastor. He was probably in his 90s by this time, and he walked with Jesus. He was a guy who was there. I mean, he actually, I mean, he would wake up and there, there's the Lord and he's right there. He lived with them and walked with them and prayed with them. And they, they broke bread together and they, they shared life. He was an eyewitness to Jesus. And he's writing to a group of churches, not much different than this one. They were really young people and they were probably three to four generations removed from the life of Jesus. And they were probably small house churches is what they were at the time because Christianity during this period was fiercely, fiercely persecuted. But there's some people who had crept into the church and they began snatching people away from fellowship and the truth about Jesus by telling lies. And one theme that we are going to visit again and again is this concept of fellowship. This concept of fellowship, which here means when John writes fellowship, every time we see the word fellowship, it means a mutual commitment. We are committed to a common purpose, a mutual commitment to a common purpose. And then we'll see again and again that whatever breaks fellowship breaks the purpose. Whatever breaks fellowship in the church breaks the purpose of the church. Whatever breaks fellowship in a fraternity or in an RSO is going to break the purpose of that RSO. And the message this morning is going to take us down as we dive deeper into some, probably some unpleasant roads. And I've done the preparation and the work, but I'm not sure how the first century church received it. And I'm not sure how you're going to receive it either. But the theme this morning is essentially your sin and Jesus. It's your sin in Jesus. And, and these are the two things that we talk about all the time anyways. So it shouldn't hit you too hard, but, but it really comes down to your sin in Jesus. And, and if we stop talking about that, then we're going to end up with some sort of self-help club. We're not going to be worshipers of King Jesus. We're not going to hold to the message of the truth of who God is and who, who Jesus proclaimed himself to be. So this morning, we're going to stick to the knitting and we're going to be hitting this theme in 1 John. So here's the part where you come in. You need to be able to take the concepts that I'm talking about and apply them very specifically to your life. I'm going to be speaking in generalities. I'm going to be speaking very generally, but you need to do the specific work of application with the very specific things that you wrestle with. So here's my goal, is that I want to encourage you to allow God to to just bring these things to the light, whatever they might be. You know, the scriptures talk in dualities. They talks about... Uh, darkness and light, death and life. And there are some things in your life that might be habitual. You know, there are some things in your life that you're embarrassed by. There are things in your life that, man, the repeat button is just pushed and it just stays on. And I want, I want us to become honest people. Honest people. And I, and I want you to see that if you're honest with yourself, you can be honest with God and those around you. And therefore, they're, therein lies the only hope and the reason for hope that we have is when we are, we're honest. I'm going to pray, and hopefully you can set aside your distractions and let the scriptures and the weight of what God wants you to hear just hit you in a very appropriate way, the way that I think that it intends to have in your life so that you can make the right judgment. You can make the right judgment about your life and your heart and your attitudes and your actions in light of the love and tenderness and mercy of Jesus. So why don't you pray with me? Father, I, um, I, think, I think I speak for us all when I say that we, we want to be perfect and, and have no problems at all. 
We want to hide our hurt and pain and shame, and, and we all have that. We're kidding ourselves if that's not there. But if I'm honest, I know, I know I'm a mess. Help us not to despise that. Uh, let my incompleteness, Lord, let everything, all the messiness of, of who I am and the hurt that I've caused and what's been done to me, let it lead me to streams of grace. So, Lord, I pray that the distractions would be put aside, Lord, that the weight of your words would hit us in an appropriate way. God, that we wouldn't be kidding ourselves anymore. And help us to be honest this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> so let's dive into, uh, this week we're looking at 1 John 1, 5, 1 verse 5 through chapter 2, verse 2. And verse 5 says this, this, message, this is the message that we heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him is no darkness, no darkness at all. This is the message that we, were, that we heard from, from him. Let that sink in. This is from Jesus. This is what John's saying. It's from Jesus. I, I heard this from the Lord. Uh, these other guys who have snuck into the church, they can't say that. This is the message that I received, and, and here's the message. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. Essentially, John begins with the claim of who God is and who his character is. God is light. He's trying to give us the basis for ethical application. If God is light, then, then we ought to walk in the light. And we're going to move to ethics and ethical behavior. But first, you have to start with the character of God. And many of us, many of you, you have issues in your life that you're dealing with that you'd like to conquer. Most of us want greater character and greater growth, greater maturity. You don't need a bag of tricks or more motivation or five steps to this or seven easy new ideas. You need God and you need to know God and what he's like and who he is. And so John begins here. He's saying that God is light. It is a great metaphor for who he is. It captures the reality that, that God is more than just attributes. He's more than just attributes. He is utterly, wholly unlike us. He's completely different from us. To say that he is light is also to acknowledge that all the darkness, all the injustice, all the pain, all the, all the stuff that you see that happens here on this earth doesn't come from him. It comes from us. The horror is from us. God is light. In him is no darkness at all. God is perfectly good. And we can describe him. God is perfectly wise. God is perfectly patient. God is perfectly right. God is perfectly loving. God is perfectly kind. God is perfectly gentle. No darkness. I am patient sometimes. I am a good dad and a good husband, but also at times I'm a, I'm a horrible dad. I'm a horrible husband. I'm a good pastor. Sometimes I'm a horrible pastor. I'm a good boss. Sometimes I'm not a good boss. I'm not always kind and gentle and loving, but God is not like that. He is light and in him is, is no darkness. But I get upset and I hate and it's called sin. And what do I do with that? I mean, what do I do with that? It isn't until you see light or compare your life to the light of God that you, you realize the darkness in your life. You know, light exposes areas of imperfection because finally I'm seeing clearly. Ever look into one of those concave mirrors? I think that's right. Concave mirrors at like Bed Bath & Beyond or something. You know, you kind of stare into it. 
The one that magnifies every single pore on your face. Have you guys done that? Okay. Do you, you don't stare in those mirrors and go, ooh, I love it. I love it. You avoid that, right? It's easy to avoid and live in your own darkness. But God is like that. Light exposes you. And so having laid this groundwork of the character of God, John now relates to the church. He relates three things that the false teachers would have been heard saying. And they all start the same way. If we say, if we say, if we say, some of your scriptures may say, if we claim, if we claim, if we claim. And the first is this, if we claim or if we say that you can be a Christian who sins. The second is if we claim that you're a Christian and you don't have a sin problem anymore. And the third is if we claim to be a Christian that has never had a problem with sin. And John wants his friends to be absolutely sure what the solution for sin and darkness is and what real fellowship with God is like. Some of us might fall into one of these three categories. And my hope is that you'll see that Jesus is only, he's the only real solution for you. He's the only one left. So verse six, if we say, or if we claim, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. If we say, if we say we know God, if we say we're in a relationship with him and we're partnered with God in proclaiming his message of grace, because that's the idea of fellowship, but continue to walk in darkness and sin, then we're guilty on two accounts. First, we're liars. We're lying about our relationship with God. Second, we're guilty because we don't practice the truth. So to be in fellowship with God, it means that you live in light of the truth and you put into practice that truth by avoiding sin, avoiding the darkness. The phrase here to practice the truth, it means to live the truth. It means to do the truth. You do the truth. It's not enough here then to claim God to be a Christian. Like, I, I'm a Christian, but you must also live in the light of that fact, live in light of that truth and walk in, walk in the light. To claim to know God and have fellowship means that you live in such a way that you avoid sin, period. But the issue here isn't that we do sin, because John's going to make it clear that we all do. But the issue here is habitual sin. It's, it's the habitual stuff in our lives. It's the habitual darkness that we are not avoiding. And to make, we make no efforts to deal with. Some of you think that you can, be, you can be a Christian and you can live in habitual sin. I mean, you think that, but there is not such a thing. And that's what John's trying to say. This is like a person who would claim, I'm a Christian gossip, or I'm a Christian alcoholic, or I'm a Christian prostitute. I am a Christian thief. It makes no sense. First, I personally don't care for the word Christian to modify anything like a Christian author or Christian artist. I think they're an author and they happen to be a Christian. But you get the point, right? There are no, there are no um, Christian pornographers. It just doesn't make sense. Um, <clears throat> you may say, well, I like to drink and I get drunk most weekends and it's what I like. It's who I am. I'm not going to change, nor should I, but I'm a Christian. My first re- response would be to ask you if you really know Jesus. I mean, that's what John's talking about, because I would guess that you really don't. I, I wouldn't say that in a condescending way, but I hope that you would measure your conduct by your life of well, what, what, it, what, it, what happens in your life, how you walk in your life, by who God is and what he says. If you could simply push God around 
in your life and make him into whatever you want, then you are bigger than him. You're bigger than him. So what happens is you come and you sit and you listen to teachings or you join in activities of the church, but you don't do what Jesus says and there's no obedience in your life. Now listen, guys, I'm not talking about people who are just checking this Jesus thing out. I'm talking about people who say, I'm a Christian, but I don't avoid the things that God tells me to avoid. Does that mean that you have to be perfect? Absolutely not. It just means you stop lying to yourself. And here's Jesus' solution for us. This is the kind of the counter hypothesis here. He says, but if we walk in the light, he is in the light, and we have fellowship with one another. There's that word. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Again, John is speaking in generalities, and you'll have to do the work to make it very specific to you. But when God ignites a heart for him, he calls you to come near him and be with him and be in fellowship with him in the light, because that's where he is. Two things here that you need to understand, and they have to do with ethical living. First, if you do not walk in the light, then you don't believe God's grace expressed for you in the cross. You don't believe it. You don't. But when you turn from darkness into light and expose those things in your life by the light of Christ, then you have fellowship. You have fellowship with God and you have fellowship with each other, and we're going to get to that. And Jesus, he says, cleanses us from sin. You know, God wants to cleanse you, to wash you, to make you new from all the evil in your heart and your mind and your attitudes, and and, and do you believe that? Secondly, you'll see that this is not a call to perfection. John's not saying that you have to be perfect. You, You wouldn't need to be cleansed from sin unless it's in your life. And so walking in the truth involves a scrutiny that brings moral failure to the light so that you're no longer lying to yourself and to God. Jesus is in the light. Walk with him. Come into the light. If you do, your life will be better. Things will get better. It will will mean that things that, that were okay with you, like lying and gossip, sleeping around, getting drunk, you'll begin to revile. You'll begin to hate those things when you walk into the light, when you come into the light. There's, there's real, there will be real good fruit in your life when you walk in the light, when you stop sleeping around, when you stop lying. It is a better way to live. This is not to say that you won't have ever experienced hurt or pain or suffer, because those things will happen. But blessed are you when you suffer for righteousness' sake, not because of your sin. That's in 1 Peter. When you come into the light, you're going to have integrity. You're going to be able to sleep at night. You're going to be able to put your head on the pillow and say, God, I I walked with you today, and it is sweet. Now, the benefit of walking in the light, John says, is that, and this is, he says, we have fellowship with one another. Well, that's somewhat of a surprise to me. I don't know about you. You'd think that he would say that the benefit of walking the light is that you will have fellowship with God, but that's not what he says. You'd think that that's the most important point here is that you're going to have fellowship with God. But what we can do is we can infer that the benefit of walking in the light is that you have fellowship with God. It's just, we can infer that because we're cleansed from sin. So John focuses in on the fellowship of the church. And I think this is what we take away from it. There is no real fellowship with God that is not expressed. Listen, there is no real fellowship with God that is not expressed in fellowship with each other, with other believers. And this, and this makes sense because 
because sin is very real. It ha- it, it's real in a vertical sense between us and God, but it's also real in a, in a horizontal sense in community. Just as it pushes God away and it separates us from God, it does the same thing here in relationships. You know, life is all about relationships. So when you think of sin here, what, what happens? Jealousy, anger, strife, bitterness, unforgiveness. It pushes people away. It pushes people apart. It does, this, it does this all the time in marriage. Sin destroys intimacy. But we were made to be intimate. We were designed for intimacy, but sin destroys it. It destroys that good. And it, sin always leads to death. You, got, you have to understand that sin always leads to death. Death in relationships, death in friendships, death in families. Sin destroys, period. And so naturally, it will destroy fellowship in the church. That's why he says, if you come into the light, you're going to have fellowship with one another. And I think that there's another application here for us today, because I'm willing to bet that there is a small band of Lone Ranger Christians out here on this campus. You, you, you know them. I mean, here's their motto. Here's their motto. I believe in Jesus, but not what? The, the church or, or organized religion, right? That, I mean, have you heard that? Right? Hey, I love Jesus, but I'm not into the church. I'm not into organized religion. And I'm thinking, every time I hear that, this is me. I go, what, what's your thing? Disorganized religion? I mean, I'm like, I don't get it. We, we, are, we, are, we are organized people. We don't watch disorganized sports. We don't do disorganized cooking. I mean, who cares if I don't drain the Mac before adding the cheese? You always drain the Mac before you add the cheese. It's not like we don't like organization, but what is it? I get it. I get what's going on. We like organization. I think rather what some people don't realize is they don't want to have to deal with with their stuff and their life and do it in community. But God always intended for all that stuff in our lives to be in community because he's a God of community. So, so, John is shattering this ridiculous notion of these individuals because it's an oxymoron. I love Jesus, but I'm not so much the church. I get it. You know what? We're all hypocrites. You know, just let's deal with it. And that's what John is saying. Bring it to the light. You know, we're all hypocrites. So welcome. I must be the chief of the hypocrites because I'm leading you. But that's, that's the reality. That's who we are. And so John is basically saying walking in fellowship with God means that there is and exists fellowship in the church, period. That it has to be that way. So it might be a cool thing to say. You know, it might be cool. It might be a cool thing to say, but it's incredibly, incredibly uninformed. It just isn't true. They might know Jesus, and I'm sure some of those people do. You know, I don't know their heart. I just, I would beg with them. You got to have a bigger understanding because I think there's, it's an infant understanding, and this because the idea is huge. Salvation is huge, and I think what happens is we take Jesus and we make him my own personal savior. He's just for me, you know, and God becomes really small. And we miss the fact that salvation is always this way. We never, never will you see in scripture, I am to the, the call to invite Jesus into your heart. It may say believe in your heart, but we never say, God, come down into here. Now he does dwell in people, but the, but the direction is always this way. God includes you in his plans. He's including you in his history. He's included you, including you in the redemption of the world. It always moves in this direction into something bigger. 
He's not just a personal Jesus. There is an agenda that he has, and he wants you to be included in that. It's not the other way around. And so real fellowship with God, it means walking in the light. It results in real community. And that's what we want. We want real community. We want people who are outside of this place. And there are great churches here in town, outside of all the the, uh, Jesus-exalting churches in town, to come and find a new community where real life happens and exists and people are coming to know each other and there's real fellowship and, and hurts are being healed and stuff is opening up and people are walking in honesty. And it's a mess, but it's good. And real fellowship means walking with God. It results in real community that is organized because Jesus is the one who cleanses. He's the Savior. When darkness is exposed, he saves, or he's nothing at all. I mean, he's either Savior or he's nothing at all. And it's his blood that cleanses. I want to pause here and just let it be what it is. It's his blood that cleanses. It, It was no small feat to submit to crucifixion. John was there. I mean, he saw it. He witnessed it. Jesus was the one last week that I said, he looked at John and said, uh, to, Jesus said to Mary, his mother, um, this is your son, John, this is your mother. Basically, take care of mom for me. He was there. He saw it. The word excruciating, it's the Latin word for out of the cross. We needed to invent a word and create a word that means this is the pain that you feel when you are crucified. The punishment of sin is death. God has an economy. And this is what this is the exchange. Sin equals death. Someone or something had to be put to death for sin. You lose enough blood, you're dead. It's Jesus' blood that cleanses us. God has provided a righteous death to satisfy justice because sin must be punished. Jesus Jesus was crucified on the cross. He died for sin, Not, not, not his, but ours, if we would receive it by faith. It comes down to either or. There's a lot of both and in the world, but this is either or. Either you fall on him and let his death include you in fellowship with God and fellowship with the church, Or you die apart from Christ and you just deserve the just penalty for your sin. And if you come to Jesus through faith, you will walk in the light. And all that John's saying is that you can't meet Jesus and not change. Period. Next are those who claim that since receiving the anointing of Jesus or the special knowledge of Jesus... This kind of, you got to listen to last week's message. They have not, they say, we haven't sinned at all. We are, we've become perfect. They're no longer guilty of sinning. In verse eight, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Here you have to understand the difference between a Christian's moral position in God and ethical living. Okay, anyone who has put faith in Christ is cleansed from sin. It's done. God remembers it no more. You've gone from being a slave to sin. It was the only thing that you could do all the time to being freed up instead of just disobeying God all the time. Now you're freed up to make moral decisions. You are free from sin, but the stickiness of sin might be there. Now you can choose to go back there, but now you have the opportunity because of Christ to really obey. You can make clear moral distinctions. 
and decisions. We're free from the moral consequence of sin, but now we have the freedom to obey Christ. So, so scripture teaches this idea of progressive sanctification. You come to know Jesus and you are growing, 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 growing in maturity. It's a, it's a progress. As you cling to God, your life will begin to reflect the right standing that you already have in him. That's what God wants. That's maturity. But there are many teachers who claim uh, that Jesus, they, who claim Jesus, you know, I know Jesus, but they teach that I no longer sin. You can watch them on the quad. When it gets, when the trees start budding, I'm sure you will find the people out there that say, 1976, I came to know Jesus and I have not sinned since. Or you can listen to it on YouTube. It's crazy. Here's a clip. And there are hundreds of thousands of people buying that crap in America. I'm just going to tell you. That was Joyce Meyer. Now, I, I get her story. I understand her story. And there's a lot of, I think there's a lot of wisdom that she has, but she's wrong. I mean, I just go, just read it here. You, this is not true. In essence, this teaching, it gives a nod to Jesus. It just says, if, if you're saying, thank you, Jesus, you gave me a good start. I'll take it from here. I'll take it from here. First, that's incredibly proud to think. I'm never going to sin. I just think, you know, you're devilishly close to calling your own bluff because I think you're arrogant. This is the height of self-deception. This is the heart of the deceitfulness of sin. What we learn here is that rather than walking with Jesus in the light, we no longer need him. I mean, that's what, that's what it is. We no longer need him for anything. And, and instead we depart from him and we lean on what? Um, a, a propositional truth or our own character or maturity, a false sense of perfection, not leaning on the Lord, but all those things. And real character is the ability to rely on Jesus. Real maturity is the humility to be able to rely on. On Jesus And John is beckoning his church that you, you can rely on him. There is no graduation ceremony with Jesus. It, it just doesn't exist. You, you will finish school, we hope, right? You're going to be done. You're going to get a degree. You're going to get a diploma. You're going to walk across that stage and you're going to be done. But you never, ever finish grace. You will never finish the gospel and go pro. It's just not how it works. It's not like that. Now, I, I get upset with my kids two, two weeks ago. I literally, I don't think I've done this in a decade. I screamed at a driver who gave me an evil eye. I was just ticked off. I say things that get me in trouble all the time. A root sin in my life is anger, and God is continuing to make me like him. But the answer to these issues in my life is, is what John proposes as a solution. He says, if, if in verse 9 we confess our sins, it's not that you will no longer sin, but if you confess your sin, he's faithful and just to forgive sins and to cleanse us from unrighteousness. 
And that's what he's, he's beckoning. Don't, don't buy that stuff. Don't buy that stuff. Just confess your sins. And John pictures here a life of continual confession. It's not a one and done. It's, it's a life of humility walking with Jesus. A situation where we are continuing to acknowledge when we fall short of who God is and what he desires. And when we do, because of Christ, God cleanses us of sin. The purpose of confession is what? It's reconciliation. And that's what it is. You know, I'll take my kids and like, you did something wrong. Would you apologize? Sorry for doing that. And you know, sometimes they do a great job. Sometimes like, sorry. And you know, you got to work that out. But the idea is that there's a break in relationship. You've done something wrong. You've done something wrong. And you become reconciled. Will you forgive me? Reconciliation. Confession is all about reconciliation. And it brings things in the light in order to restore. And that's why Jesus came is to seek and save the lost and restore what life was originally intended to be. Restore things between you and God, between roommates, between friends, husbands and wives, children, parents. It's always meant to be restoring. That's the point of confession. Thirdly, John rewords what he said above just a bit differently. So if we say, if we say, if we say, in verse 10, he says, this is the third one. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. And this is what I think this is about. Sin sometimes can be a word that's reserved for really bad people like Hitler. You know, it's just the bad people, not me. I'm a good person. Right? I haven't done any of those things. Those guys, you know, they're, they're bad. But me, I'm pretty much a good person. And Jesus loves me because I'm a good person. I mean, he has to love good people like me. And the denial of sin, I think, can work two ways. First, we can deny that we don't sin. Sin is that bad stuff that those bad people do. But I'm good, man. I'm, I'm an A student. I'm polite. I lead an RSO. I'm a student representative. I drive the speed limit. I'm good. I must be good. We can also, though, admit that we're not perfect and that we sin, but then we deny to have sin by doing nothing about it. Does that make sense? We can say, well, I know I'm not perfect, and I know I do wrong, and then maybe that wrong stuff is sin, but then I'm going to somewhat deny that I even have it because I'm not going to do anything about it. So these are people who say that, you know, I, I know Jesus. Jesus must love me, and there is stuff in my life, <laughs> but I'm not going to do anything about it. If you have no needs to be confessing sin, no need to get on your knees and grieve, no need to deal with sin, it's just like saying, I don't sin. It's just like saying, I don't sin. It's not real. I mean, it's not a real thing for you. And God is a liar. You make God out to be a liar because the crimson thread of blood that's woven throughout Scripture hits its climax when Jesus died for sin. He died for the sin of the world and for your sin. And so the sum of the works of God just becomes a sham. Jesus, you really didn't have to do that. I mean, what a waste of a good life. I'm fine. Poor Jesus died. But I'm fine. John's saying the truth isn't in that person. They need God, but they don't acknowledge it. And John closes this section with hope. And with affection, he says in verse, oh, did I skip? <clears throat> no, this is verse 1, chapter 2. He says, my little children. John cares deeply about his friends. He was a lot older. I mean, these are like his, his, his kids. I'm writing these things so that you may not sin. Huh? <laughs> I mean, 
Has he lost his mind? He's just saying that you can't be sinless. Did he, is he just contradicting himself? No, because the next verse says, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He's simply just trying to encourage his listeners not to fall into this way of thinking. And he can do that. I can, I can do that. I don't want to sin. I, I don't want to sin. That's okay. That's good. That's fine. But I do sin. And, and, and you, you do sin. There is darkness in your life. But if you do, he's just saying, Jesus. You just remember him. Remember Jesus. John says he's an advocate. He's an advocate. He defends Christians who've put their faith in him because, because he's in us and we are in him. We are included in him. So he's not saying that, that there, you, you won't ever sin, but he's saying, listen, when you walk into the light, you begin to avoid it, and there's growth in your life. Verse 2, he says, he is the propitiation for our sins. This word propitiation, if you have the ESV, um, if you have a different translation, what is the word? What does he say? Anyone who has it? I can't remember. What? Atoning sacrifice, right? He's the atoning sacrifice for our sins. He's the propitiation. This word here means that God's wrath is on Jesus and was put on Jesus, and it's no longer on us. The punishment is on Christ. It is no longer on us. In the first place, Jesus is an advocate like a court of law. He defends us. But here, John's picturing him as a priest in the temple, paving the way to be reconnected with God the Father, living in intimacy with him and under his mercy. Author and pastor John Piper describes Jesus in in these terms, and I love this. He says, The wisdom of God devised a way for the love of God to deliver sinners from the wrath of God while not compromising the righteousness of God. The wisdom of God in Christ devised a way for the love of God, God loves you, to deliver sinners from the wrath of God. He hates sin. He punished Jesus while not compromising the righteousness of God because sin must be punished. God never overlooks sin. It will be punished. And so motivated by love for you while not compromising the reality that the guilty must be punished, he put himself forward as a righteous sacrifice, as a propitiation for God's wrath for your guilt so that it would be done and dealt with, so that you can get what you don't deserve, which is grace. Jesus took the punishment of sin that you deserve so that you could be seen as new and clean and whole. You're not subject to double jeopardy. You can't be tried twice. Your debt is paid in whole, not in part. For those who have faith in Christ, it is a transaction that happens immediately. When Mia, I don't know when that was, back in the fall, said, yeah, I, I believe, I believe God remembered her sin no more. Done. Forever. Because Jesus accomplished it. Not only did he, he not, not only died for sin, he came back to life. John Owens wrote a fantastically difficult book to read entitled The Death of Death in the Death of Christ. He defe- Jesus defeated death so that we could live forever. The resurrection is coming. It's coming. 
There's no double jeopardy. You will not be tried twice. And so all this sin that, that John is talking about is stuff that gets in, into the relationship. You will not lose forgiven, completely pleasing, utterly pleasing to God, totally forgiven. You won't lose that. But you'll damage your relationship with the Lord. And God wants you to walk in the light. And it doesn't matter what you've done. You know, if you're hearing this for the first time or this is like repackaged and new for you, it doesn't matter what you've done. And the shame of what's been done to you is dealt with also at the cross. It doesn't matter at all. It doesn't, it doesn't matter because God has provided a way for you to know him. Nothing's too big that he won't be able to forgive Whatever it is, the categories that God is bringing to your mind that are current right now is not bigger than the grace that God has for you in Christ. If you examine yourself in the light of God, you'll find that you need him desperately. And that's what John is calling his people to. That's what I think God is calling us to. But he says, He didn't die just for our sins, but also the sins of the whole world. Jesus has adequately dealt with all the sins in all the world. He is able to forgive any and all. It's not that the act of death automatically forgives. You have to understand that. Just because Jesus died for the sins of the world doesn't mean that everyone's sins are forgiven. It happens through the application of, of his death into your life. Truth never changes anybody. It's always the application of truth that changes lives. If Moses, if you could imagine Moses sitting with his, all of his people who are in slavery, and, and Moses and Aaron receive from God, this is during the Exodus, if you go back and read this, and he says, here's the solution. Uh, another plague is coming. So take a spotless lamb you'll see that John the baptizer calls Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Here's the spotless lamb. Go take him. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And cut that lamb open. Kill that lamb and take that blood over the door and spread it over the door for him. And when the angel of death comes and sees it, it will pass over your house. Death will not come to your house. There could have been people who heard that and went, I'm not going to waste a perfectly good lamb. It's going to be supper someday. What would have happened? Death would have come to their house. It's the application of truth that changes lives. Jesus died for the sin of all the world. There's nothing that you've done that will surprise him that he hasn't dealt with, but you have to come willingly in faith with your hands open. Some of you need this for the first time. You're going to, like, man, you're going to get real with your life for the first time this year. Maybe you've claimed Jesus, but there's no evidence of him in your life. There's no, like, fruit of him in your life. But John was writing mostly to people who knew Jesus. The people who had departed fellowship, they were gone. He was writing to people who knew Jesus. And what he's saying here is, bring your darkness into the light. My children, confess. Stop hiding, stop running. Call it what it is and see it the way God sees it. This is the only right response for sin. In the end, it brings reconciliation and restoration and healing and hope and unity and grace and love and mercy. I think you get it. 
think you guys get it. This is a great time and a place to continue to practice walking in the light through confession. And so I'm just inviting you right now between you and the Lord, and maybe you make it more real and you tell another human being, if there is something that God has specifically, I've spoken in generalities, specifically bring into your mind, this is a great time for you just to be able to say, I know the Lord loves me. And you honestly deal with the things in your life. So I'm going to pray. I'm just going to ask the band just to, you guys stay right there. You, you guys pray too. And pray with me. And then we're going to worship. And my hope is that you can just bust out some tunes. Because you can securely rest in his love. So, Father, as we sit here, I think some of us may be pondering freedom, pondering hope, pondering mercy. And honestly, Lord, when I I think about confession, I think about this, the shame and the embarrassment that I feel. And, Lord, I, I wrestle with the lack of trust that I have about my identity it's not about the good that I do or, or the bad that I do, but Lord, you, you call me to walk in, walk in the light as you are in the light. And Lord, I just tell you that you're a perfectly good savior for a sinner like me. And Lord, I just ask that you would call us to walk in the light, to be where you are. And whatever those things, Lord, that you, that you do, you do your work. You do your work of conviction. Maybe it's through the worship time, Lord, that you would uh, speak to us. <clears throat> Lord, I don't, I don't want anything to be in the way of my relationship with you. I don't want anything to be in the way of these young men and women, their relationship with you, Lord. Because uh, freedom is here. It's come. Thank you for your word of encouragement uh, that addresses us as sons and daughters. The band can come up. In Jesus' name we pray.